0: A Missouri lobbyist decided this legislative session that he would try to change Title IX in the state after his son was expelled from Washington University through an internal hearing process that handles complaints of sexual violence. I'm Leah Becerra, and you're listening to Deep Background. Here to talk about what's been happening in Missouri's legislature this session concerning Title IX is Edward McKinley. First off, Ed, some people listening to this may not know what Title IX is. Can you explain it?
1: Yeah, so Title IX is a federal law that prohibits sexual discrimination at school, uh, public school, private school, any school in the country that receives federal funding. Um, and it was sort of initially applied to sports. It was not created only to be in sports It just outlaws discrimination, but the first application of it was in um, unequal treatment for women's and men's sports teams because it was such a clear-cut example of oh, the men's team gets these resources that the women's team doesn't and it was a really easy way to document the discrimination taking place, but from the beginning it's been about preventing any kind of discrimination, um, and that inclu- has grown to include um, a system that has hearings and polices, sexual assault, harassment, discrimination, stalking, um, relationship violence, all everything that falls under that umbrella on campus. Um, but it's become really controversial since um, 2011. There was something called the Dear Colleague Letter, that Obama sent down and that basically changed the guidelines slightly where he told, he said that colleges had to be a lot more aggressive with how they were policing um, sexual violence and harassment. So since then it's become sort of a controversial subject. Um, There's been books about it, there's been some high-profile cases. People sort of whip up a narrative of there being um, a lot of false accusations. The data doesn't really bear that out, but There's, when you combine that with everything that's been happening nationally with the Me Too movement um, and with Kavanaugh, it's sort of, Missouri was sort of ripe for there to be this movement for people saying there's not enough due process on campus. Um, How do we address that? So that's sort of how these bills came into effect.
0: So the Title IX legislation that was in place, was it working?
1: Well, I mean, I suppose it would depend who you ask. Um, people who support the bills would say that it wasn't working because the hearing process that was set up, the balance was tilted unfairly against the people on who were accused on campus of sexual assault or harassment. And basically the way that works is they say, you know, they're not getting constitutional rights that you should have in the Constitution, but critics would say, well, those are only for criminal cases, you know. You're not going to get locked up, you might just get kicked out of school. So the same way that a business is able to set their guidelines for dealing with sexual harassment or whatever, like if your boss fires you for sexually harassing another employee, you don't get to appeal that to a court. But they were trying to add those kinds of constitutional guarantees into the campus Title IX process. Um, So that was sort of the argument for it.
0: So at least in some people's minds, there was a legitimate reason for trying to change all of this.
1: Yeah. And it's undoubtedly true that people were falsely accused and expelled. I mean, that's just with any crime anywhere, that's going to be the case. The public policy question that critics would bring up would be to say, well, how much is that really happening? And how much do we want to do to address that, given that it might have unintended consequences Um, frightening off people who want to report their experience um, or just re traumatizing people that have already dealt with enough in a system that some would say um, certainly people at Washington University would say is actually not slanted in in, toward um, the accused in the first place and really it's just unfair toward the victims already and this would just make it more unfair.
0: And there were actually two versions of a change that lawmakers were discussing, right?
1: Yeah, so there was a House and a Senate bill. And the bills are so similar that you, it's obvious that they're coming from the same source. They both, they both would route appeals to the Administrative Hearing Commission, which is like um, administrative executive branch judges. Um, they both added, you know, different protections that exist in criminal trials for um, those accused in Title line hearings. Um, and they would have allowed people to sue their schools and the accusers if they're found to have been deprived of due process. Um, It doesn't really lay out how you would in turn find someone had been deprived of due process, but there were a lot of concerns with them and the bills underwent a lot of changes so they were sort of in flux. Um, But the key differences is that the House version had retroactivity So it would have applied backward, which becomes really important later when we start thinking about, well, who has someone that they know that this could affect? Um, The House had an emergency clause, so it would have taken place immediately if signed into law. And we can see on the Senate side that McIntosh is personally extolling staff of the senator who filed the bill, saying, this needs to have retroactivity. You know, this is the only way that people... Who can get justice who have already been wronged by the system without paying thousands and thousands of dollars in federal court, but Romine said, you know, he was the Senate sponsor. He said no. I, I he told me no I don't do legislation that way, so we're not going to have retroactivity um, But it certainly wasn't for lack of trying on uh, Richard McIntosh's part.
0: Can you tell everybody who he is?
1: So Richard McIntosh is a longtime Jeff City lobbyist. He's a partner in a lobbying firm called Flotron and McIntosh and he represents a lot of people, he's very influential in um, Jeff City. Uh, he worked for, um, he worked in the Senate with the Democrats back when they held the majority, I think it was in the late 90s. Um, and he's married to a woman named Audrey Hanson McIntosh, who is the presiding commissioner of the Administrative Hearing Commission. Um, she was appointed by Jay Nixon in 2015, she's also a Democrat. Um, and that becomes relevant when we start talking about the specifics of the legislation and how it was crafted. And especially given that we have evidence from her email and allusions to her in Richard's emails, where we can see that despite the fact that she's an administrative judge, she was making specific suggestions to craft the legislation so that Cases involving Title IX would go to her.
0: And what was Richard MacIntosh's connection to these bills?
1: So he he wrote the bill, and then he started a dark money group. Um, they're called dark money because the tax status that they have means that they don't have to report the source of their funding. Um, although we were able to find out that David Stewart, a longtime client of MacIntosh's and a billionaire from St. Louis, um, was one of the funders for that, um, but he created this group that re- spent more money than we know, um, a lot, to hire 29 lobbyists, um, pay for advertising, and then they funded this other group that had, you know, spokespeople put out advertising. They were going on, like, Missouri politics shows to talk about the bills. Um, they really succeeded in making the Title IX a huge, huge thing in the public eye and were advocating for it. Um, Although that sort of backfired on them when everything changed.
0: Everything changed when you published a story that found that after his son was accused and subsequently expelled from Washington University in St. Louis last year through the school's Title IX process, McIntosh launched a campaign to change the law for every campus in the state.
1: So the other thing to note here is that he start he gave this a shot last session toward the end in 2018. Um, they tacked on the the core of the title IX changes with the Administrative Hearing Commission and some of the other protections to an unrelated bill, um, but it wasn't passed. And then at that point, you know, people who were opposed to the bills thought, okay, they were just testing it out, and this is going nowhere. Um, but then the fight was sort of just beginning. Obviously, this session was the big one. But yeah, we published that story toward the end of April. It was something that had been in the works for a while. Um, I would go so far as to say it was basically an open secret in the Capitol. A lot of people knew about it, but everybody sort of knew about it secondhand. Um, So it took a lot to get to a point where we felt like we were 100% comfortable publishing this and we were sure that it was true. Um, But once we got to that point, we rolled with it and it sort of went off like a bomb in the Capitol. There were a lot of follow-up stories from other publications that had been chasing the story, um, and it sort of turned the whole debate about Title IX on its head because you now had to justify at every point, you know. I will say, to be totally fair, there were many, many people who thought this was a very necessary thing. They really, really, really believed it. That's undoubtedly true. But the appearance was certainly there, that the House bill especially, was specifically tailored in such a way that it would have directly benefited the Macintosh's son. And it definitely became such that if you supported the bills in any way, because they were also tied together because of the lobbying effort, you had to justify why you were doing so. And it effectively killed the bills for the session.
0: And had MacIntosh's amendment been enacted, it would have allowed his son to appeal the results of his Title IX hearing to the State Administrative Hearing Commission, where his mother, MacIntosh's wife, Audrey Hanson MacIntosh, is the presiding and managing commissioner. Ed, how did you make this connection?
1: So we had, we had a few sources that I can't get deep into, um, but it was at a point where I, we developed the story to a point where I was totally comfortable that it was true but we weren't quite ready to publish it and then at that point it was we were looking for more people around the building who had been told by Richard or other people firsthand that could talk about how they had been told it was true secondhand Um, and I spoke with Representative Peggy McGaw on the floor of the house um, and I asked her you know because she was involved in the amendment from 2018 so I asked her Um, Did you did you know at that time that his son had the experience with Title IX and getting expelled or did you find out later? And she sort of looked at me for a second. I think she was trying to decide how to respond. And she sort of tilted her head and she was like, well, I found out later. And I said, oh, okay." And did Richard tell you personally? And she goes, yeah, yeah. And I actually met his kid. I don't know that she realized that she was sort of the last piece of the puzzle before publishing the story, um, but we were looking for someone, like one last person to say that they, on the record, that they were knew about it. Um, so it was that point where um, we felt like we had the story, and we ended up running it that night.
0: There were also a lot of documents sort of attached to the story. Can you talk about... What do you had to do to get those documents
1: after that initial story? We put in open records requests to lawmakers and to uh, Audrey Hanson McIntosh asking for emails having to do with Title IX and the bills. And that turned up more than a thousand pages of emails and records. And an important thing to note there is that those emails with the exception of Hanson McIntosh, but from the lawmakers would not have been accessible in previous years. Um, So this is the first year that lawmakers are subject to the Sunshine Law. So by getting those records and telling the story of this bill and what happened when it was being written and the strategy being coordinated to lobby for it, this is sort of a window into how legislation gets drafted and pushed in a way that we've never had the chance to do in years past. Um, And there was a Republican-led effort in the House to make lawmakers no longer subject to the Sunshine Law. It didn't end up passing, but it's entirely possible that someday soon lawmakers won't be subject to it anymore. And we may have just had this brief window into the legislative process where anyone could get these emails or records if they just asked for them And so that's what we did, and that's what we're sort of trying to tell here. It's not just a story of this Title IX um, thing and all the controversy that came with it, which is interesting enough on its own, but it's also the story of how does dark money influence politics in Jeff City? How do lobbyists, how are they involved in writing these bills? How do bills get pushed? What's going on behind the scenes here? Um, And I think the fact that it's sort of emblematic of a bigger story is what makes it um, more interesting than just the Title IX Bills.
0: We'll be right back. Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a Deep Background listener. Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only cost you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. After your report came out linking MacIntosh's ambition to change Title IX to his son, what was the reaction in the legislature?
1: Um, I think it's fair to say that it went off pretty explosively. Um, people were upset. People, were, Some people were surprised. Some people were less surprised. There had been people speculating, critics of the bill, for a while that there was something more going on that was sort of the ongoing whisper with the, with the bill. There was always the question of, you know, who is this for? What is this? Because the proponents of the bill, especially toward um, the end of March, started selling the bill as, you know, this is something to help African-American students who are disproportionately hit by this. Um, and during the Senate filibuster, Senator Jamila Nasheed, who's from St. Louis, um, offered an amendment to basically give public defenders in the Title IX process which got voted down. And she said, well, if this got voted down, this isn't really about helping um, African-American, often poor college students. So who is this supposed to help? This is about protecting young, wealthy white boys who think that they can do and get away with anything because they can, they dad or they mom can go get an attorney. That's what this is about. This ain't about no young... We had some little kids, and so I said, oh, this is going to impact young, poor black men in universities. Who's going to pay for that attorney? They barely got in the school. They got probably using pale grants and, and grants to be in the school. I mean, not, not, not just the grants, but scholarship. Football scholarship, basketball scholarships. If it wasn't for those scholarships, they, they, they may not even afford to be able to go to a college. That loan paid for an attorney. That's why my amendment is important. So I think there was always that specter of, you know, the, it just seemed so specific. And the retroactivity was so, it sort of stuck out when you read the bill. It was, so someone's pushing this bill and it would mean that anyone could go back and relitigate their case under these new rules that are also part of the proposal. Um, It just, it seemed a little convenient. And I think when it came out, everyone sort of said, yeah, makes sense.
0: (laughs) This story even blew up outside Jeff City and the normal politics channels. Why do you think that was?
1: I think it definitely struck a chord with some people it's sort of the, it's a great example of the kind of politicking that people sometimes see as um, unsavory, where you're sort of pushing things out of a personal motivation. So that's one piece of it. And then there were these paid lobbyists who were more involved in the bill than maybe the sponsors would want you to believe. And that's another piece of it. And then there was this money, this dark money group where you're not supposed to know where the money's coming from and they're pushing piece of it.
0: It seems like it was full of drama.
1: <clears throat> yeah, like, there I was can... a lot of pieces to it, for sure. And I think it, it was also shortly after the um, college admissions thing, where the people were bribing the college admissions um, people to get their kids in. And I think it sort of struck the same sort of chord with people, where it was look at what well the wealthy and the People with access in our society can do that other people can't do. Um, and I, I think it hit that, that chord for a lot of people, and that's why it really resonated.
0: Do you think the report harmed passage of the legislation?
1: Uh, yeah. I think the bills the bills had slowed down in both the House and Senate prior to that. Um, the speaker had not placed the bill on the voting calendar, and it had run into the filibuster in the Senate that had sort of revealed holes in its support. And even in the bill, um, the sponsor had a long conversation with a uh, Democratic senator, Scott Sifton, who, um, he's a lawyer, and he sort of went line by line. And you could just tell that he had thought deeply about this, and there were some legal issues in the bill that would need to be worked out. Um But there was the sense for much of the session, If it slowed down at the end, but for much of the session, it seemed like this thing was marching toward getting passed. Um, And I think if you asked really anyone around mid-March, they would be like, yes, these bills are going to get passed. Um, And it slowed down with the filibuster and with not making it in the House. House supporters were looking for another bill to attach it to as an amendment. And when the story dropped, it just became too toxic to really do that for. And there just wasn't enough time left in the session for things to cool off. Um, So I definitely think it put the nail in the coffin for this session. Can I back up for a second and talk about something from last year? Definitely. Um, So one piece of the story here that I think is really interesting and we haven't written a ton about because it's in St. Louis, but the culture of Washington University is really interesting in this because Time and time again, you see Richard McIntosh in emails to lawmakers talking about Washington University. He speculated after the St. Louis, so the St. Louis County NAACP president endorsed the Title IX bill and was later fired by the national NAACP for doing so and for um, his support of another political measure. Um, But he speculated, you know, um, Washington University Exerted political pressure on Planned Parenthood, which then in turn did it to the NAACP and that's why he got fired And he would say he would say in emails things like abortion only exists because of Washington University in Missouri and um, He would say these to conservative lawmakers that he knew it would find that sort of messaging appealing um, And he just consistently showed this disdain for Washington University He said oh, they're just trying to write write things um, how they're like liberal elites want it Um and it was this really consistent, and obviously his son was expelled from Washington University. But if you go back a few years, Washington University was investigated by the federal government in 2017 for its Title IX practices. And there were all these anonymous op-eds last spring. Um, they're really moving. You can find them on the Washington University student newspaper, StuLife. Um, and it's people telling these accounts of having to wait or just having these really horrible experiences with the school's Title IX. And it led to this huge protest led by this group called Title Mine, M-I-N-E. And that extracted real changes from the school in the Title IX system. And then this is last spring, right at the same time that this amendment is being pushed by McIntosh, right around the same time that his son is accused and expelled so we're seeing protests on one side saying that the system is unfair for people accused, and it's burdensome, and it's awful, and it's not getting them justice. And then all of a sudden, we start having a conversation about, you know, do we need to do more to guarantee rights for the accused, for the for the people who are accused of perpetrating this? Um, and I just think it's interesting that this one school, this one campus, at this one moment in time, also became Became such a flashpoint for both sides of the issue
0: So, um, I think we should take a little bit of time and just look outside of missouri for a moment because There is a federal proposal, I guess looking at changing title nine
1: Yeah, so um betsy devos the secretary of education is looking at a new set of guidelines to give to the states to follow um, they're in the um Public comment phase. They got thousands and thousands of comments after they release the changes. Um, but it basically is going in the same sort of direction that the Missouri changes are were. Um, not as far, definitely not, and not the specific provisions in there. Um, but it's that same sort of cultural movement toward due process with sexual misconduct. It's born out of that same sort of aura um, and. Yeah, it would address a lot of the things that um, people who said they really want to due process wanted to accomplish. And that was one of the huge talking points for critics of the bills throughout the whole session. It was, well, why are we trying to do this now when there's changes coming anyway? Um, and I think Senator Romine, the sponsor, said at one point, he said, well, we're the show me state. Like, Let's lead the way. I mean, even the majority leader in the Senate, Caleb Rowden, said that argument had a lot of merit. So yeah, they ultimately, just said it looks like we're gonna be waiting to see what the changes are before we start seeing another push for this in Missouri.
0: Clearly at the federal level, Title IX legislation is is not being done talked about, but what about in Missouri? Are we gonna pick this up again or is it dead?
1: Definitely not dead. Yeah, so the important way to think about this is that the mandate is to keep for there not to be sexual discrimination at school. That mandate has evolved into a system where we have hearings and investigations to maintain a degree of fairness and not having discrimination. Um, so we have an evolving system and it's not necessarily it's not a bad thing for it to change. And I think even I don't think I know people who people who are opposed to the bills no none of them were saying the system's perfect as it is. They would just say these proposals I don't agree with for xyz reasons. Um, so yes, we're definitely going to see some changes at some point. Um, and it's just a question of, you know, what's the root of those changes? What will the consequences of those changes be for good or for ill?
0: I think it's worth noting here that, um, Ed, you're an intern for the star. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: You, you are the most experienced intern in the room because the you've actually, intern. you've been with us for, uh, uh, how many months now?
1: Well, I was an intern coming back to the last summer, and I took a few months off, so it's almost a year. <laughs> almost a year,
0: and you will be here again this summer. Yeah. So we're, we're happy to have you, and um, you're doing great work. Thanks. You can find all of our reporting on Title IX on KansasCity.com, and we'll highlight a few stories in the show's description, too. If you liked this episode, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite shows. I'm Leah Becerra, and you've been listening to Deep Background.